0: Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I, I realize that there are probably some people out there who might take issue with what I want to say in a second here, but I think the lessons of history make what I'm going to say completely clear and factually correct. Um, Discrimination, racism, has been a stain on this country literally since our founding. Um, Slavery, the cruelties of Jim Crow, the lynchings and violence against those who marched for civil rights, um, discrimination in schools, in housing, in hiring, in voting and healthcare care, um, issues that we contend with to this very day and that hang over the country uh, every single day and I think cause many, many people to wonder just who we are and who we want to be and how we are going to look for equity, for equitable treatment among all people. It's an issue that I want to take up on the show today and, of course, what sparks this is that on his first day in office, and this is how the New York Times put it, President Biden devoted more attention to issues of racial equity than any president, new president since Lyndon B. Johnson, a focus that has cheered civil rights activists but drawn early criticism from conservatives. In his inauguration speech, the president pledged to defeat white supremacy— and used a burst of executive orders on day one to declare that advancing equity, civil rights, racial justice, and equal opportunity is the responsibility of the whole government. That is a sweeping, sweeping proposition, and it's what we will begin our conversation with today. I'm very pleased that uh, we have with us, as he is on Thursdays, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley. Kevin, thank you for being back with us today. It's
2: good to be here, Bill, and I, too, am really looking forward to this conversation.
1: Um, we're also joined today by Reverend James Woodall, who is the president of the Georgia NAACP, uh, Tiffany Williams-Roberts, who is the community engagement and moving building and and. and, and, and Building Council at the Southern Center for Human Rights. Say that title more correctly than I just did, <laughs> Tiffany. I've got my punctuation off. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's
3: okay. It's Community Engagement and Movement Building Council. But we Mo- just say Movement, movement building, building Council
1: it. for short. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for being with us. And we're joined by Doug Shipman, who is the founding CEO for the uh, Center for Civil and Human Rights. And uh, Doug devoted an enormous amount of his uh, time uh, exploring issues of civil and human rights that that were so crucial to the building of that center and to the advancement of the center. Um, If we can, what I'd like to do is start, and Kevin, please take the first crack at this. I'd like to go around and ask each of you just to give me your first general impressions of what the president had to say about looking to deal with systemic racism in the United States. Kevin, as I said, it is a sweeping uh, proposal.
2: It absolutely is. And he he did not hold back from the perspective of uh, an inauguration speech in particular, which um, are words that are agonized over for a long time and carefully chosen. And I think that he, uh, I mean, the, uh, uh, some of the terminology that he used in the speech about systemic racism and, and some other things, were it was very purposefully chosen. And I think part of what the president must intend is to force the conversation, to get people to acknowledge what these things mean and why they're important, as opposed to uh, stepping around them carefully and letting people avoid having to talk about them.
1: Tiffany, the Southern Center for Civil and Human Rights, um, is is absolutely dedicated to this very cause. Your thoughts about the president's uh, words?
3: Uh, I I thought that um, his words were important because so often we try to talk about issues of systemic racism by using other phrases in order to not make people uncomfortable. And what I'm hopeful about is that we can actually take that systemic part (laughs) out and understand that we have to actually reform and remake systems that uphold this harm. And so that's a difficult work ahead.
1: Okay, so let me modify my opening with each of you, uh, Doug and James, just a little bit. And James, why don't you go first? There is, what does is systemic racism mean, and why do you imagine there are so many— people out there who refuse to accept that racism is a systemic issue in the United States.
4: Well, thanks, Bill. And and when you think about systemic racism, you think about laws that were instituted to literally keep Negroes in their place. For instance, the citizen's arrest statute that was literally written in the Georgia Code to ensure that newly emancipated African Americans were no longer able to be free. And so they, they came up with, with very legal, sponsored, state-sponsored ways to really decide who was citizen and who was human and who was not. And so when we talk about the president and his words, I, I'm going to be honest and very blunt here. I don't care about what his words say when we still have a system, to Tiffany's point, that is continuing, continuing to disenfranchise communities all over the state and all over this nation. And so it's important for us to look beyond the word and say what is the policy that's being pushed to ensure that people are not only recognized as human beings, but are giving the the, the the truly uh, it, the, the rights that they were endowed with by their creator, as outlined in the Constitution.
0: Doug, so I was struck by Biden talking about systemic racism and then putting forward um, uh, executive orders around private prisons wanting to uh, undertake voting rights at the national level, Um, talking about Asian-American and Pacific Islander discrimination, especially in COVID, Um, talking about tribal sovereignty and issues of Native people. So I think Biden is taking systemic racism and saying, one, it is across races, and two, it is systemic in these things that you might not think are quote-unquote typical civil rights as we sort of have, have understood them in the political discourse. So I think he's really taking this very broad view. Um, why don't people want to accept it? One, I think it really goes against the notion of self-determination, which is such a bedrock of sort of American identity. If you say if there's systemic racism, it means that you're not able to individually self-determine. And two, I think some folks, especially white folks, um, are scared that it, that somehow it will ascribe blame to them, and so immediately it becomes well. you know, systemic racism, is that my fault? And so uh, all of a sudden, instead of just talking about the way the systems work, it becomes a personalized political issue. Um, And I think it's interesting what Biden's trying to do across a whole set of government uh, institutions.
2: Yeah, I would pick up on what Doug's saying too, Bill. Um, I I do think the president and and some of, obviously the folks he's appointed and some of the moves he's made with his advisors, are on a track to point to those very things that these executive orders have been very broad-based, and as Doug points out, they're they're not the things a lot of times that are talked about. You know, the, the president may have an advisor on, on civil rights. He may, but instead, uh, Biden is sending the message that cuts across all aspects of American society and even subtle things or things that if you are um, not a person of color that you don't often think about have a result that that people interpret as systemic racism. And I think it's gonna force a lot of us, a lot of citizens to take this on. And I think it could be difficult. Uh, I also think the aspect of doing it through executive order um, has its problems. Um, and I, I'm sure we'll get into that as the, as the hour goes on, but um, there's risk in that as well, so.
1: Um, So, so James, uh, I want to start looking at a couple of the things he uh, talked about, and especially in the context of where we have been in this country for the last basically four, maybe five years, really. Um, uh, Two things that the president did that are responses to the previous administration are this. First of all, he uh, ended an order that uh, Trump had uh, issued – which eliminated diversity training programs in federal agencies. And second, he abandoned what was called the 1776 Report, which was a revisionist uh, look at American history. Both of those things were rooted in uh, what Trump said was a, uh, a, a view of American history at its most negative, that it was, not a real, uh, it was not a realistic look at who we were as a people, uh, and essentially that we were better than the way uh, we had been portrayed. And, and, and James, there are a great many people out there who are Trump supporters who will agree with that. And, um, and so I'm wondering if you have to find a way, all of us have to find a way, to engage those people in new thinking about this whole issue
4: I would I would I would suggest that we don't because there are people who are going to be on the wrong side of history at literally every juncture and so the more time we spend on trying to convince people that their their understanding of what American history actually is is incorrect and 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 quite frankly uh uh disrespectful uh then then I think we spend we, we lose opportunity to actually engage the issues of the day. That's like saying, uh, like, say Representative David Clark, who, who compares himself to one of the original 33 members of the General Assembly who were expelled because he didn't want to take a coronavirus test. That's, that's just asinine and really doesn't require much attention to know that it's just, quite frankly, incorrect. And so I think as we look at some of these actions that uh, President Biden and Vice President Harris has taken thus far— it's important for us to really—and Doug kind of mentioned it. It's important for us to, to remember that these are executive orders that, with the switch of a president, could change. And so what we have to do is really recommit to getting Congress to do its job. When like we talk about voting rights, the executive pen cannot institute the new voter registration act or new voting rights act. That has to be legislation in Congress. And so when President Biden took office, he made several promises— that were instituted through Congress that needs to be done and done immediately. Because his words were, we would do stimulus checks immediately. We would rejoin the climate accord, Paris climate accord, which he did, and so so many other things. And people are literally wa- watching and waiting, saying we are expecting the president to hold his end of the bargain. We showed up. We showed out. We made sure that, that Warnock and Ossoff were elected. Now do your part. And so that's what people all over this nation are expecting.
1: Um, just to clarify for people who uh, are not as uh, on top of the issue as as, as you are, James, um, you mentioned that David Clark, who was kicked out of the uh, uh, state house uh, two days ago because he refused to take a COVID test, uh, d- he declared that he was fighting the same battle that 33 African Americans were expelled from the General Assembly were because of the color of their skin, and he was pounced on uh, by. Many, many members who found that comparison uh, outrageous. Doug, w- what about this notion that there are people out there who believe that things like diversity training, that this 1776 report uh, do uh, paint a picture of America that uh, we need to reject that isn't accurate? Well, I think you have to start
0: with some uh, a piece of data that I think is crucial here, and that is we are moving towards a majority minority country. And that is a demographic shift that has long been in the press. It will happen at some point in the near future. And I think it underlies a lot of the tension that we see, because especially white America is now reckoning with moving from a majority and, in essence, the norm to, to being a plurality and a much more diverse society. So something like diversity training, in one way, is very simple. That's training people for the future of what America is going to look like demographically. It's just a skill that everyone needs to have. So I think a lot of these battles, you know, if they're framed as about the past, then they can be about, well, what, what was America and what should it have been and how should we read it? And I think what Biden's trying to do is to say, wait a minute, let's just look at the forward of of the future that's ahead of us. I mean, even climate change. Right. I was struck yesterday by how much racial equity was put forward in the climate change speech. Right. That that is a that is a very new move for a government and a president that has been among activists but that's a new move, and it's a forward-looking move. It doesn't matter how we how we have come to here, but as we move forward with solutions, we have to put racial equity there. So I think there's this interesting tension between a view of America from a let's look at and fight about the past view, and another view that's trying to reframe and say the reality of the future requires requires a different approach.
1: Uh, Tiffany, given that the Southern Center for Human Rights is uh, dedicated to working on uh, issues of justice around the criminal justice legal system. Um, I'm wondering if if you can expand on, help us understand the importance of President Biden uh, declaring that uh, he would end the privatization of many federal uh, prisons.
3: Sure. So we, we focus on decriminalizing race and poverty at the Southern Center for Human Rights And part of that means that we understand that when there is money to be made on incarceration, we have to absolutely eliminate any practice that promotes private industry from profiting um, from the suffering of especially poor, black, brown, and marginalized folks. And so to the extent that private prisons are a way for industry to profit off the suffering, we um, wholeheartedly support the administration's um, refusal to, to move forward with additional with Private prisons, but we also know that most of most people in federal custody and private prisons are there because of immigration. And his order does not address immigration detention. And then beyond that, private prisons only constitute a very small segment of the federal um, incarcerated people population. And so that means that we also have to think really seriously about the way we are going to depopulate prisons generally, um, including federal and state prisons. So this is an important first step. It's sort of a redoing of some of the things that the Obama administration had put forward, but it will not likely make much of a dent in this issue when we're talking about mass incarceration.
2: Tiffany, I wanted to follow up on that because one of the things that uh, has come up in news coverage of of Obama. I'm sorry, of President Biden's executive orders and his language and all of that. And maybe James will jump in after you. Is is how Biden is talking about it, what he's doing, how he's saying things versus what President Obama did. And um, talk about that a little bit. I, I found that interesting and. Um, uh, I, I guess I want to know if, if it's uh, if it bodes well for the agenda or not that, that Biden has.
3: So, so when we think about the fact that the Biden administration is linking racial equity to this issue of mass incarceration um, and, and the fact that the Obama administration was rather timid about it, I mean, for obvious reasons, that the first black president um Generally, any reference he made to racism um, received far more criticism than it would if he would, if he had been of another hue. I think that including prison reform and uh, depopulation or decarceration um, policy agenda items in the racial equity plan is um, important because it helps to affirm what organizers and activists in organizations like the Southern Center for Human Rights have been saying for decades, which is The prison system is one of the bedrocks of systemic racism and oppression in our country. Uh, And I think that moving forward, what what has to happen is we we become a little bit more clear about the partnership that needs to be had between um, the, the executive and the legislative branches. So that, as James said, they can actually enact things like the Breathe Act and other, um, other pieces of broad legislation that impact not only the people who are currently incarcerated, but the conditions that give rise to mass incarceration. Uh, and if, if Biden continues to discuss um, uh, mass incarceration as an issue of racial equity, I also hope that he doesn't discuss it as the only issue of racial equity.
4: And if, if I could hop in here, because it's important to also recognize that Biden, on one hand, is is pushing for the closing or or the stopping of private prisons on the federal level while simultaneously upholding people on a local level, you know, amplifying their leadership that are committed to the exact same practices that he is saying that he is not committed to to uh, continuing. Prime example is the city of Atlanta, the mayor who he has just promoted to be one of the vice chairs of the Democratic National Convention under her leadership. They have locked. Up, black and brown protesters from last year are still refusing to get rid of their, those charges, and are now pushing legislation on the state level that will continue to ensure that the prison system and the mass incarceration system is expanded. So we have to be very intentional about ensuring that we're not we're not being used for political gain. Like, this is not a Democrat or Republican issue. These are issues that are at the heart of the system. So we talk about the racist system and and systematic dehumanization. That's a bipartisan issue, and Democrats are just as responsible for that, hold ownership in that, as Republicans.
2: James, let me follow up, though, on something uh, that I think Tiffany said. Um, Is it better or somehow easier for a white president, Joe Biden, to push some of what he's been pushing than it was for Obama. I think that's, I think that was exactly her point. And if, if that's, and I think it is true, but why is that? What is it about our society that makes that true?
4: Well, in this society, there was one lie told that some were were, were created in the image of God and others were not. And so you still have remnants of that lie that's literally being promulgated through public policy, through appointments, through Organizations through funding mechanisms through partisanship, we have a sitting representative in Georgia, Marjorie Green Taylor, who is pushing these lies every day. And so, when we look at the difference between Obama and, and Joe Biden, it, there, to me, is really no difference. I mean, Joe Biden is a black man, but at the end of the day, he's still president. You have one job: push policy and lead an administration that prioritizes the people. And literally the day of Joe Biden's inauguration, the day after, we still push an expansion of, of militarism in Syria, and Iraq, right? And so it's like, yeah, we got a Democratic president and we got all these niceties and platitudes, but there's still violence happening every single day in the name of American freedom,
1: so, 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 uh, Doug James. Uh, we hear James's voice. He represents a, a, a an activist point of view where he just wants action. Uh, he's not uh, persuaded by Democrat or Republican, uh, well-intended, poorly-intended people. He wants action. But to deal with Kevin's question, uh, just for a second, Doug, I, I think the clear difference is that. Uh, president Obama, from the time he began his campaign for president, and then certainly in his two terms in office, uh, repeatedly said he saw himself as a president for all Americans and was reluctant uh, we re- to, to really play up the fact that he was an African-American uh, president. And so, you know, there are people who have criticized him uh, for not being more forceful in terms of racial issues. Uh, But at the same time, there's sort of a Nixon in China effect here where a white president can take on systemic racism uh, perhaps more effectively than an African-American who people would say, well, sure, that's what he wants. He's black. Uh,
0: I think there's some of that. I think there's there's also – you have to understand the coalitions that each of them came to the presidency with. Uh, Obama. You remember there were there were a fair number of Obama voters who then became Trump voters because they really were trying to to cast votes against what they saw as the status quo, uh, and I think Biden came with a coalition that is being read as very much one that is multiracial with issues of racial equity at the front. Biden was also elected in the shadow of Black Lives Matter protests across the summer. So there was an enormous amount of momentum specifically around issues of race that Biden then is riding in, whereas Obama was actually in his campaign, to your point, was playing down issues of race in his coalition. And so I think the momentum was quite different. Just, just one other point I want to make though, on the criminal justice that I, that I think is a, a glimmer of hope uh, around criminal justice outcomes. And that is that as registration of larger swaths of voters, especially voters of color, has happened in places like Georgia and elsewhere, that means that jury pools are going to change. Because remember, in most jurisdictions, the jury pool is made up of registered voters. So as the, the, that population changes, your juries are going to change. And I think that that we long have known that juries have been much wider and much less diverse than the overall population. And so I think that there may be a grassroots effect in the long term from that, too, that will have an impact on criminal justice.
1: So, Tiffany, let me come back to uh, this broad, sweeping vision that Biden has. Um, there's already been pushback. Uh, Senator Rand Paul on Fox News after the inauguration accused uh, Biden in his remarks of, quote, thinly veiled innuendo, innuendo calling us, meaning Republicans, white supremacists, calling us racist. That was Rand Paul's take on the Biden inaugural speech. And then Andrew Sullivan, who's uh, long been a very, very prominent and uh, well-respected conservative uh, columnist, uh, accused the president of, quote, culture, war, aggression saying that uh, what he when Biden talks about equity what he really means is that identity groups would have a specific advantage in treatment by the federal government over other groups. So there's going to be tremendous pushback. So let me ask you the most broad question and then we can dig down after we have to take a break in a minute. Is is Biden is Biden's vision too broad? Is is there really hope right now in this country that he can bring people along to accept his notion of racial uh, justice and, and equality?
3: You know, I think the question is not whether he can do it, it's whether the communities that stand on the right side of justice are willing to sacrifice everything that we have to ensure that this nation lives up to its promise. You know, there is there has never been a moment, as James mentioned, where forward progress was possible, where there wasn't fierce opposition and this sort of recycling of this idea that equity for for poor people, for black people, for brown people means that in some way white folks are harmed, that is as old as this nation, right, as old as chattel slavery. And so when we talk about thinly veiled um, attempts or or jabs about white supremacy, there is no thin veil of of protesters or rioters arriving to the Capitol with the seditionist flag. There is literally no veil. It's out in the open. And so your supporters speak for you. And we have to call a thing a thing. And there can be even those people in power in the city of Atlanta who tried to help to overturn Fulton County election results the same way that they tried to do it with um, black folks in Detroit. All of those people need to be disavowed because there is nothing thinly veiled about that attack. Nothing different, nothing different um, from the people who killed Medgar Evers. It is the same. It is the same sort of theology, the worship of whiteness.
1: Okay, I've got to get to our first break. When we come back, I want to look at a couple of the Biden proposals in more specific detail uh, with our panel today. You're listening to Political Rewind. I'm joined today by the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, Kevin Riley, by Tiffany Williams-Roberts, who is the Community Engagement and Moving Building Council at the Southern Center for Human Rights, Reverend James Woodall, president of Georgia's NAACP, and Doug Shipman, founding CEO for the Center for Civil and Human Rights. Um, yeah, I said Movement Building Council, I think, uh, Sam, but in, in any case, um, l- let's move ahead. Uh, The uh, You know, this is a broad vision, but there are some very specific uh, aspects to this proposal, Kevin. Uh, So uh, for one thing, uh, we know that black uh, Americans, as well as Hispanics and other minorities, are more severely impacted by COVID-19 than any other group. The toll is um, uh, is staggering to to think about in terms of disproportionate impact. And so President Biden uh, says he wants to devote literally trillions of dollars in his relief package to uh, dealing with disparities in health care outcomes. That's a very specific goal. It's going to need the support unless he does it by reconciliation of Congress to get it passed. Well,
2: well, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, we've talked about this some, but the New York Times sort of nailed it this morning in an editorial uh, about his executive orders. They say, and I quote, this is no way to make law a polarized, narrowly divided Congress may offer Mr. Biden little choice, but to employ executive actions or to these directives are flawed substitute for legislation. So one of the things about all of this um that is just true going forward is that if we cannot get it put into law as I think James pointed out if we cannot get a you know Congress and the president to come to some agreement on some of these matters we're in real danger I mean there's there, backlash right I mean you know Obama did these things and then Trump was elected and undid them and now Biden's going to do them and there's a chance that uh, for some reason, they will get undone later. So I, I think that w- as a country, this is a very tough moment. We either believe in these things or we don't.
1: Okay, but let's talk specifically. Uh, uh, James, Tiffany, Doug, all of you weigh in on this. The disparity in terms of who is uh, being victimized by uh, coronavirus, who's getting vaccinated, who's not, uh, is, is pretty clear. Uh, James, uh, you want action so I would assume that you're looking for Biden to put his money where his mouth is, essentially, in terms of COVID and the African-American community.
4: Most, most definitely. And, and I'll, I'll say I, I am pleased to see that I know that the state of Georgia has in, has been or they've received an increased amount of, of doses of, of the vaccine that now we can get more people with the vaccine, right? And so... These are the kind of things that we're looking for. I know there was another uh, executive order that instituted, you know, like immunization. I mean, deportation stops, right? They wanted to stop that altogether. But again, to, to Doug's point, the state of Texas sued and won, right? And so these executive actions are literally subject to a, a federal judiciary that has been taken over by these conservative right-wing extremists. And so we have to be very careful and strategic. But some of these things that I'm seeing uh, our president do is welcoming, but we have to do more. We have to do things that attack the system and not just piecemeal solutions.
1: Long time uh, in. So Tiffany, go ahead.
3: Sure. Uh, so when, when James mentioned the state of Texas, and so one example of how this the 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 um. Equity as it relates to the pandemic has to sort of be reinforced and flanked on a local level. Um, Dallas, the city of Dallas, Texas, um, proposed that they will prioritize communities of color um, when administering the COVID vaccine because they were hardest hit by the pandemic. And the state of Texas threatened to ax Dallas's allocation, right? And that is a direct attack on even a data-driven response. Give the community most impacted by the pandemic the vaccine first. Um, so that we can um, flatten the curve or help whatever we want to use to phrase it and help the people most impacted. But because of this sort of divisive, and it's not people put it out there and so. Somehow liberals are the ones who are calling on um, the causing the divide by asking for equity or demanding equity. And I seem to remember a lot of talk a couple of years ago about death panels. What is this if not death panels to say communities most impacted by COVID can't have access to care first? Right. And so um, that's that's another example of how that pushback, the backlash, when it comes to administering justice, even comes down to a data-driven response that could prove to make all of the
1: community healthier by attacking the pandemic where it's most prevalent. So um, Doug, I, we, we, we're going to watch to see how Biden enacts his hopes of building better healthcare in general, but specifically around COVID-19 for minority uh, communities. But but let me talk about another aspect of his proposal and get your uh, take on it. He, um, number one, He has specifically said he's going to raise the minimum uh, wage to $15 an hour, which uh, will help black and Latino workers particularly. Um, He's going to push Congress to act on an expanded anti-poverty tax credit by uh, pointing out the impact they have on non-white families. Uh, And then he's going to roll out next month an infrastructure plan, which the administration says will put millions of workers uh, on the job. Uh, And and Biden says this, which I think is an astonishing statement. We'll see. Our plan would reduce poverty in the black community, meaning all these things he wants to do, by a third, and in Hispanic communities by almost 40 uh, percent. That's a a bold statement, and there's a lot of work to actually uh, do the things that he's talking about.
0: Well, let's take your last point first. I think there's a little bit of a denominator issue there with the mat. We've seen poverty increase substantially over the last year because of COVID. So if you just were to rewind where we were pre-COVID, poverty would go down fairly significantly, especially among Hispanic and and Black communities. So yes, that seems like a big leap, but it's probably not as big as it seems. Um, On the other point, you know, I think that That what this argument is going to come down to Biden's going to try to make an argument around jobs and jobs that are going to be created, especially for working class people. Right. You're going to see that with infrastructure. You saw it yesterday with the green (laughs) um, uh, climate uh, action. You're going to see it in arguments around um, the minimum wage. And you're going to see the business community have to make a decision. The business community is either going to have to make a decision that it's in their best interest to grow the economy, which these things would in the short term grow the economy. and Things like infrastructure will grow the economy in the long term so they could get behind these things, though it would mean profits would be squeezed in the short term for them. Or they can fight them as they have done, you know, and a lot of times more recently, and say, no, we want low-cost labor. We, we, you know, we don't want big government spending. We're going to roll out the debt argument again. And I think it's going to be fascinating. I think the barometer around this are going to be th- places like the Georgia Chamber, the Metro Chamber, the the National Chambers of Commerce, big CEOs to see where they are on this. Are they going to back? a big government funded job creation plan as a COVID recovery? Or are they going to say, no, we actually want to continue? Because they have benefited, let's be honest, corporate America has benefited from a depressed wage labor situation, right? They have built their business models around $7.50 an hour or $10 an hour or farm workers who are are immigrants from Mexico and temporary workers. So the question is, where are they going to be on these proposals?
1: You know, Kevin, um, you talked a few minutes ago about being uh, about this interesting irony in which an African-American president uh, didn't put forth some of the proposals that a white president, Joe Biden, is right now. Uh, but you know what? Uh, when he looks at addressing poverty, it was a white Southern president who in the uh, mid-60s was the one who declared a war on poverty. It was Lyndon Johnson uh, who recognized the terrible inequity in terms of black and white, in in terms of income, and and, and also recognize white poverty as well. And since Johnson, uh, to I think it's hard to think of another president who has made such a bold statement that we're going to attack poverty.
2: That's absolutely true, Bill. And don't forget, I mean, uh, Reverend Martin Luther King turned to that issue as well late in his uh, in his life, um, as and he saw it uh, in many ways. Uh, what uh, the president's talking about captures a lot of what uh, Dr. King was talking about in, in his last days, about all of these systemic uh, policies and, and forces that, yes, um, resulted in racism, but the problem was bigger and more complicated to deal with. Um, I I think that, uh, you know, I listened to the book LBJ's 1968 recently, which goes month by month um, through the, the final year of Johnson's administration, and his passion and knowledge about the issue of poverty, um, he recognized as so important to making America what it could be. But as we know, the backlash to what some of what he passed and the great society programs, I mean, those great society programs are still a talking point for Republicans who oppose them. And I think that, um, We are just not there where people accept that these are the core issues that have to be dealt with.
1: Yes. And as as time goes by and we on this show deal with individual uh, uh, proposals that uh, Biden and his administration come forth with, I'm sure we'll hear on the show from conservative voices who are not in lockstep on a lot of what he's going to propose to do. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, I want to get an update from this panel, which has been on the show in the past to talk about where we stand in the aftermath of police murders of black people. Uh, the social justice movement, the racial justice protests that we saw in the streets, where are we headed with that? What's the energy around that right now? We'll do that and more after these messages. <music> Tiffany Williams Roberts of the Southern Center for Human Rights, we saw a lot of energy and uh, um, enthusiasm last summer here in the streets of Atlanta um, for people who wanted, to, who were calling for racial justice, uh, who were looking for uh, equitable treatment, and were responding, of course, to the murders of, uh, of black men and women. Um, where is that movement today? Now that we're well into 2021, has the energy died down? Are you concerned about whether we're still moving forward? What's your take on that right now? And then I'll get James and Doug in on that same question.
3: I do not believe that the people have lost momentum at all. What I see is... Um, organizations and advocates um, all over the city and the state working really hard to push policies um, that sort of emerged or were repopularized during the summer uprising. But what I also see, unfortunately, is uh, our failures at every level of our government. There are failures within the city of Atlanta to hold on and to um, continue forward with many of the reforms that the, that many city officials have traveled around the country bragging about. There's been a failure at the Fulton County level to support um, criminal legal reforms and a pivot toward incarceration in response to a national spike, again, a national spike in violence during the pandemic. There has been a very local, tough-on-crime, racially disparate push for incarceration and harsher penalties for the people of the city of Atlanta. Places like Athens and Savannah are moving full speed ahead with progressive prosecutors, um, policies impacting the ways that juveniles are treated or young people are treated in our criminal legal system. But unfortunately, the politics in Atlanta and Fulton County are most disappointing as we move toward this municipal election. Uh, what we are seeing is yes, while we do have um, non police, uh, non law enforcement response. To crisis that launched on Monday, Atlanta Pre-Arrest Diversion. Now, you can call 311 and ask for someone in Zone 5 or 6 to be serviced. Um by a a first responder that is not law enforcement, um but on the same by the same token, city council has rolled back bail reform, city council has passed unconstitutional and unenforceable responses to street racing. um city council has approached the state legislature, and now we're going to have legislation on the on the state level um, that would permit essential de facto civil asset forfeiture for people alleged to be involved in street racing. I just want to note, right before the runoff, a canvasser here um, in the city of Atlanta was arrested for speeding and held in the jail for street for street racing, even though she wasn't racing. So, Atlanta and Fulton are failing, um, but other parts of the state are moving forward with things that we think are very promising.
1: Uh, if I could stick with you just for a moment, because you were one of the leaders of uh, Mayor Bottoms' use of force advisory council. Uh, when it comes to the issue that sparked a lot of what happened this past summer, uh, the deaths of uh, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor by at the hands of police, and others, Ahmaud Arbery, by people who were taking the law into their own hands, are, are, we, are we making progress in terms of how we're dealing with uh, police? NPR just issued a study that said that, in fact, across the country— Police officers involved in the killing of minority uh, individuals are not being held accountable uh, and being punished uh, for their actions.
3: Uh, There is progress, but um, I think the unfortunate thing is in cities where um, uh, cities led by folks who uh, are can say that they're progressive or people of color—they get away with a lot, right? Because they get to say, "Well, I'm not racist, I'm black." And so, um, while you know the, the move forward with 311 was important because if someone had called 311 because Sharp Brooks was asleep in his car, maybe he would be alive. And in fact, ironically, the first 311 call um, that, that they received on Monday was for someone sleeping in their car. That's important. Uh, but, for example, Fulton County gave no budget allocation to the pre-arrest aversion program this year. And I think if you go into communities and say, when you see a police officer, if you go to Zone 1 and say, when you see a police officer, do you feel safer? I don't know that the answer is going to be yes. One of the other issues we raised with the use of force advisory council was a performance evaluation system in the city of Atlanta that gives officers points based on the kinds of arrests that they make and arresting a child and, and, and um, executing a felony arrest is a five-point multiplier. We recommended that the city discontinue that practice. We don't have an update about whether the city did or didn't, but if there wasn't an incentive to arrest Ray Bush, would he still be alive? Um, uh, The less contact people have with law enforcement, the fewer incidents of force communities experience, that is the data. And so I think that instead of I'm sort of caving to the fear-mongering coming from people on the north side of town about violent crime and treating violent crime as a pathology as opposed to approaching it like a pandemic, which is what experts recommend. Um, the city is is, is um, moving backwards and may do harm that we cannot undo, and my prediction is that if they continue on this course, we will see more police killings, more use of force in our community.
1: Uh, that's a, a very, uh, a, a, a really a. Uh, uh, kind of disappointing uh, 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 report from you. I I hate to hear that. James, you know, I can't help but think that last summer you were one of the young leaders who was on this show uh, to talk about the energy you saw around the young people in the streets demanding uh, racial justice. And so I'm curious what your take is on where that movement, which was so uh, uh, big last summer, is, is headed right now
4: you know, I think that movement is continuing. And on the state level, you see there's advocacy around trying to push back against our voices being uplifted. And so what we did was we changed the the, the protest to policy. And a lot of the folks that were in the streets were saying, we want policy change. We're done with the symbology. We're done with the, the fake solidarity. We want policy changes. We want systematic address of some of these issues. And so What that happened was you saw in November and again on January the 5th, people from all walks of life showing up to have their voices heard to participate in the democratic process. And now as a response, the Georgia General Assembly is is, is working overtime to to institute surgical racism by way of voter suppression. But on the opposite uh, side of that, you also see advocacy around issues like making sure that there are wraparound services for cases of fifth grade to ensure that the students that are, that are literally going to school right now are not being suspended because they, they don't have food at home or they don't have the necessary uh, things in sustenance to be able to survive. You see advocacy around those kinds of issues to ensure that everybody here in this state is able to survive and make it in community. And so I think it's at both and that even though it's very disappointing to see some of the, the racist and, and the very unfortunate attacks against our humanity, Our communities are organizing and coming together to ensure that public policy is at the forefront of every discussion that we have. The humanity of every person is at the forefront of every discussion that we have. And that regardless of political affiliation, that we can all come together and make it happen.
1: Uh, Doug, I want to get your take on this. And then, Kevin, I want to give you a chance to weigh in as we get toward the end of our show.
0: I want to pick up on a couple of the uh, threads that Tiffany and and James talked about and and put it in the context of the civil rights movement. You know, the the Montgomery bus boycott happened in 1958, 1959. It was one city. It was one community that came together. But those protests and that win then launched an entire decade of not only protests, but to James's point, policy changes, right? Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act. Uh, immigration reform, even uh, that LBJ did in 65, I think that there is a real possibility that the biggest memory for a lot of people out of the COVID era is actually going to be the Black Lives Matter protests. That will be the, that summer. When you think about the summer of COVID, it will be BLM, especially for those who participated. I think this is not a, a one uh, issue kind of thing for exactly the reason that James said. You are now seeing policy prescriptions being built around areas like climate change, criminal justice reform, et cetera, et cetera, that you see in Biden, uh, Biden's executive orders. You see these protests then turning into policy prescriptions. That has longevity. We've seen that in history. And I think there's a real chance that the entire next decade is going to see an enormous amount of momentum and action. To Tiffany's point, I don't think that the people's energy has faded at all.
1: Kevin, what's your take on this? Well, Bill, I'm
2: probably sort of biased given the work I do, which is um, I'm paying close attention to how some of these come out. So let's look at two things. First, what will the Georgia legislature prioritize and fund? Will it spend all its time on uh, what we see as more demanding standards um, in order to vote by mail or, or absentee, you know, absentee votes? And uh, the Republicans see that as securing the system. And on the other side, I think Democrats see that as suppressing the vote. And another thing I think we have to watch closely is Lonnie um, Willis, the new Fulton County prosecutor, has a huge decision about the Rayshard Brooks case. And I so I think we have some pretty good indicators in our community about what's possible, what can be done. You know, in other words, will we... Will the legislature finish its session with a deep commitment to a much better public health system in Georgia? Or will they finish uh, the session with a headline that talks all about how they've changed absentee voting?
1: Uh, Kevin, explain to our listeners what the big decision is that the new DA is going to have about Rashard Brooks. Well,
2: we have two officers charged uh, with very, very serious felonies. They were charged under the leadership of the former prosecutor, and as we've talked on the show, there's a lot of conversation about are those appropriate charges or not, uh, and you know it's hard it's hard to find a middle ground on that issue. So at some point, our community is going to deal with it, and it, it, I think it will be an important thing that tells us a lot about where these things will go.
1: Um, Kevin Riley, you get the last word on today's show. As always, it's a pleasure to have you with me on our Thursday shows. Um, Reverend James Woodall, thank you so much. Doug Shipman, Tiffany Williams Roberts, um, I appreciate this conversation today. Um, I think we, we've all said on this show that the country really is at an inflection point. Uh, and, and as Kevin summed it up just a moment ago, the question is which direction are we headed? It's something we're going to watch very closely on Political Rewind in the weeks and months ahead. And I would invite all of you who are with me today to come back and continue this conversation. Uh, That's all the time we have for today's show. Um, Tomorrow, uh, we're going to take a look at the growing uh, anger and uh, and the growing issues that many in Washington are seeing with the behavior of one of Georgia's new congressmen, Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's been making headlines all over the country, and we're going to talk about it on the show tomorrow, among many other issues. So I'll hope you'll be back with me then. Until tomorrow, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care, stay healthy, and wear at least one mask, if not two. Thanks, everybody.